0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clear Note Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning and uh, welcome uh, from, from Moscow, Idaho. Greetings uh, from North Idaho. It is really a, a pleasure and honor to be with you. Um, Uh, We hold uh, this ministry here in high regard, so it's really um, a great opportunity to be here. Um, I'm going to be looking this morning at Genesis chapter 2, looking at verses 4 through 7. We'll be jumping around a lot, but I want to start there. So here's Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. This is the history of the heavens and earth, and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown." For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the ground and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you're the God who spoke all things into existence, who breathed life into man. Father, we depend on your word for our being, on your spirit for our life. You're our triune maker and our redeemer. We praise you because you've done all things well. Please bless us now as we come to your word that we might understand it and walk faithfully in it. We praise things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So in uh, if you're watching a, a TV show, the lawyer in a, a courtroom scene, the lawyer often begins with that moment where he asks the judge for a little latitude as he begins his uh, cross-examination of the witness because he knows he's going to stretch the judge's patience a bit. So I'm going to begin with that same move. I want to ask you for a little latitude as, as we work through this, because um, I, um, I'm going, I've got two plans at the beginning. Uh, the first is to walk through a, uh, a little bit of a, a Hebrew grammatical exercise that may be a little bit uh, tedious and boring. And then after that, I want to make a, a theological point that will be very depressing. Um, <laughs> So, I'm going to get that, and then I hope I've got something to bring to you after that. But I, um, at the very least, I aspire to those two things to bore you and depress you. Um, and and if, if more happens, then praise God. Um, I want to look at, at uh, this section of uh, chapter 2. In Genesis, um, it, it's kind of interesting because it, when you're reading through Genesis, you note how um, Genesis kind of marked or is divided up into these sections where um, it'll, each section will begin with something like, now these are the generations of uh, Abraham. These are the generations of Isaac or Jacob. Uh, the, that phrase there, the generations of, in Hebrew is uh, the phrase Toledot. And so they describe Genesis as being broken up into these Toledots. Well, the first Toledot is right here, Genesis 2, 4, um, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. So that phrase there, this is the history of, is Toledot. So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And, and it, it makes kind of neat little seams in the book of Genesis as you're kind of understanding each episode as you move through. So, so it's kind of interesting that we're, we're getting into the second section of Genesis. We had uh, the creation of the, of the world in chapter 1, the six days of creation, and now we move to the creation of... Of a, we, we focus on the creation of Adam. But one of the things that will catch people and can kind of um, trouble you is as you look at this section, he's going back and he's re- retelling the moment of the creation of Adam because Adam was created on the sixth day. And now we're zooming in and, and, um, and getting more details about the moment when Adam was created. But what's a little um, concerning is that it says right here that Adam is made... Before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown. Well, if we go back to chapter 1, we know that on day 3, the plants were made, and on day 6, Adam was made, man was made. And now, here, we're told that when Adam was created, it was before plants were made. It feels like these are two, two different accounts of creation that actually contradict one another in their chronology. And that can be a little bit uh, concerning, obviously, if there's a contradiction there. I wanna dive into this section a little bit and I just wanna break this apart and I wanna show you how actually I don't think there's a chronological um, contradiction here. I think that it's saying something a little bit different here in chapter four and then uh, having noticed how he's saying something different, we'll unpack it for the rest of the sermon and see how this different thing that he's saying is actually, I think, quite significant. So this is a new section And it's zooming in on the creation of Adam. And and our problem here is that in 2.5, it says that Adam is created before any plant of the field uh, was created, uh, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. That's chapter 2, verse 5. Adam is created before any plant is in the earth, and before any herb of the field has grown. And our our concern is that seems to contradict the chronology in chapter 1. So let's take these apart. The first one. Before any plant of the earth was in the field, this is where we have to do just a little bit of a, a Hebrew vocabulary exercise. Um, looking more closely at the word there, we see that that phrase, that plant of the field, is actually a very specific and um, and somewhat rare Hebrew word. The word for plant there is siach. It's not the regular word you would have for plant. It's not the one that's being used in Genesis chapter one. Siach, and it's, it's a, um, if you look in other places where the word Siach appears um, in the Hebrew Old Testament, you'll find that it's describing a very particular kind of plant. Um, in uh, Job chapter 30, verse 7, Job is describing his enemies and he says that they are, are out there among the bushes, the Siok, and it says they, they, among the bushes they braid under the nettles they nested. Okay, so the Siach appears to be that thorny bush that's out in the wilderness, the scrubby bush out in the wasteland. That's what a seaok is. In Gen- Genesis chapter 21, verse 15, when Hagar um, leaves with Ishmael <coughs> and, and she uh, is afraid that Ishmael is about to die, it says that she puts him under a seaok, under this scrubby bush out in the desert, uh, thinking that they are both about to die that's what Siak specifically refers to is that thorny um, nettle that's out in the wilderness, okay? And that would mean that in chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, when it says Adam was created before any Siak was in the ground, then that means that Adam was created at a moment in time before there were weeds in the ground. Now, once you hear it like that, that doesn't, probably trouble you very much in terms of the chronology that we know and understand of creation, because we know that weeds don't come into the ground until chapter 3, verse 18, after Adam's fall, uh, we're told, uh, both thorns and thistles, the ground is going to bring forth for you. So the, the um, thorns and thistles, the sea of the, of the wilderness, that's something that came as a result of the curse because of Adam's sin, happens obviously after his creation, and so now we got kind of problem solved. I don't think there's actually a, a contradiction there. there was, that was the first one. The second one is um, the phrase that it, it says that Adam was um, created before any herb of the field had grown. Before any herb of the field had, had grown. Now, herb of the field, I think, refers specifically to grain. It's the wheat and the barley. It's the cultivated crops uh, that, that we farm to eat. Um, they are specifically mentioned in chapter 1, verse 11, on day 3. It says that God created those on day 3. But chapter 2 does not say they were not created yet. It says they had not grown up yet. They were in the ground, but I I take that to mean that the barley was in the ground but had not yet come to full, um, hadn't sprouted and wasn't ready to be harvested yet. It was before the barley was something that you could eat from. So chapter two doesn't say they weren't created, just says it was before the grain had grown. So once again, I don't think there's any um, contradiction here. Okay, there, there's, this isn't describing anything different than what chapter one would have set us up to believe. Okay, but here's, here's the question. Why, why do that? Why as an author sit and call your attention to, I'm going to tell you about the day Adam was made. It was before the weeds were in the ground. We can understand why you would say that, because we know weeds are going to come up as a result of the curse, so it's significant that he says there's no weeds yet. But why does he say it was before grain was something that was ready to be eating, right? Before grain, before the wheat and the barley were something you could go out and harvest and eat from. Why would the author really call our attention to Adam being in the Garden of Eden Before the fall, when he's first created, not having access to barley and wheat. Why why would he do that? Well, I think if we actually read these first few chapters really closely, we'll start to see something really interesting happening here. We need to actually look at the curse in chapter 3 to understand this. Look at chapter 3. I'm looking at verses 17 through 19. Okay, Adam and Eve have both eaten from the, the forbidden fruit, and God is pronouncing his curse on Adam. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." Okay, you see that in the curse, these two things that were, that were brought up at the very beginning when Adam is first created. He's created before there's weeds, before the herb had grown up. They're repeated again now at the curse. He says, now there's going to be weeds, and now you're going to start eating from the wheat, the barley and the wheat. You're going to start eating from the herb of the field. There's, there's something in the curse that's calling Adam's attention to, this is now going to be your food. Why? why? Why would he be doing that? Let's, let's keep working at this. When the ground is cursed, the result is that man will now have to work to eat from it. The ground was cursed, and now Adam has to work to eat from the ground. And what's really interesting is that if you pay close attention, as you're reading these first few chapters, you'll see that prior to the giving of the curse, the text focuses on the fruit trees that God provided Adam for food. Prior to the curse, it's all about eating from the the fruit that comes from trees. Look at, I'll just skim through this really quick. Chapter 2, verse 9. Okay, so we're before before the fall, Adam and Eve are in the garden. What happens? Out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So before the fall, he says, I'm going to make all these trees. These trees are going to be good for your food. This is where you're going to eat. Look at verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. So when it's time to give Adam instructions for what to do for mealtime, he points to the trees. And he says, Go get your fruit there. You can have uh, any of the fruit except for these trees that I've set aside. Um, in, and keep, keep going a little bit. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Even when um, Eve is, uh, uh, is arguing with the serpent, she says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden our food, these trees, this is where we're supposed to eat. Okay, this is all before the fall. All of the food is focused on the trees. But then after Adam's sin, Adam is then told that now he's going to have to toil to get grain from the ground. Chapter 3, verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Up till now he's been saying eat from the trees. Now after the, the sin, he says, now I want you to start eating from the ground. And the ground is cursed. And you're going to eat from the ground. Uh, look at verse, uh, verse 18. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. Now is where we start talking about grain and barley as something you're supposed to eat from, the thing that's coming up out of the ground. Your hands are going to be in the dirt working to till the ground to produce this grain, and this is where your food is going to be. Um, he's, verse 18, he's going to have to fight weeds, and he's going to have to sweat, okay? Thorns and thistles it'll bring forth, and you'll eat the, um, the herb of the field, and you're going to have to sweat like crazy as you work to get this, this harvest, Look at verse 19. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, right? The food that comes from the grain, from the wheat and from the barley. From the sweat of your face, you're gonna eat bread now till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So you see that transition from prior to the fall, it was eating fruit from the trees. After the fall, it's all about working the ground to get, um, to get this food from the cursed ground. The ground has been cursed because of Adam's sin. So God cursed the ground, and he made his farmers. It's no longer a matter, a matter of effortlessly picking a piece of fruit off of a tree. Right? Before the fall, you just walk through the garden and just grab dinner. It's, you don't even have to bend over to get it. Right right there, you, you can just pick it off and eat it. After the fall, you have to work the ground in order to get the food. Um, even look uh, at chapter 3, verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. All right? After the fall, he sent out of the Garden of Eden. How, does, how is that phrase finished? And what's he going to do when he goes out of the Garden of Eden? Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. All right? it was, it was that, it's all wrapped up in this idea that there's this curse that's been brought on man. It's to go out and work the ground for grain. So now look at, at chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, and chapter 3, um, uh, verses 17 through 19, and you see a really interesting kind of set of parentheses. By the way, we're, we're, we're kind of, we're building up. We've done the, the, the more kind of dull uh, exegetical, or, you know, tearing apart the Hebrew, and we're now into the really, it's going to get more and more um, depressing. All right, so we're, we're just about to finish the two things I promised you, and then we'll see if something can happen after that. Um, so so there's these two, two parentheses to this section, this Toledot that we've looked at. The introduction in chapter 2, where we're being introduced to Adam, and then this curse that is given that wraps it up as Adam is being sent out of the garden. And you'll notice this transition um, from where Adam was before to where he is after, and it's all gonna kind of center around this idea that it was before man had to work for grain, and now man has to work uh, to get grain out of the dirt. Chapter two, verse five, before any weed of the field was in the ground, chapter three, verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you right? Before the weeds, now there's going to be weeds. Chapter 2, verse 5, before any grain had begun to sprout. Chapter 3, verse 18, and now you'll eat from the grain of the earth, okay? It was before wheat, now wheat is going to be your food. Chapter 2, verse 5, it was back before there was a man to till the ground. Nobody was cutting open the earth and planting seed. Nobody was farming. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 18, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it. You're going to go out, and you're going to work the ground um, and till it. Chapter 2, verse 6, a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of it. This effortless water, right? This, this water it would just come and just make it so everything was taken care of. You didn't have to work uh, to, to provide for these trees. And then in chapter 3, verse 19, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread, okay? Okay? this effortless water, and then the very water of effort, okay? This effortless water, watering all the trees, and now sweat pouring off of your brow as you work to get bread from the ground. It's a really interesting kind of um, set of parentheses that set aside and bracket this section. Um, So therefore, I think chapter 2, verse 4, when it's um, at that very beginning when it's saying, now here I'm going to introduce you to Adam uh, before uh, there was weeds in the earth, before the herb had grown, what it is is it's calling our attention to introduce us to Adam before the fall and before the curse. It is not trying to give us a competing chronology of the order of creation. It's saying, here's the story of the man that Adam, or the man that God created, and we're gonna look at him not as you know him now, but rather we're gonna look at him before he sinned, before the world was brought under a curse. Um, now, so why this focus on grain? Why move from trees? to wheat and barley. Why, why would he be doing that? Because the thing is, just to be clear, all of creation was cursed. It's not like fruit, cheese are this kind of continuing um, access to a pre-fall world and, and wheat and grain are somehow uh, particularly wicked. I don't think that's at all the, the truth. Um, the whole world was cursed. Um, I'm, assuming that, um, I'm assuming that it's as it's more difficult now to, to you know, grow an orchard than it would have been in the pre-fall world. So why, um, why is he focusing on a transition from trees to grain? Well, we're told in chapter two, verse seven, that Adam was made from dust. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. And there's, there's a pun there um, the ground, the word for ground, the Hebrew word for ground is Adamah, and Adam's name is Adam. So Adam is taken from Adamah. Uh, it, it's a kind of a clear pun in the Hebrew. So you've got dirt, and Adam is taken out of the dirt, and his name is kind of like Dirt Man, right? He, so there's a little bit of a, a pun there uh, in the Hebrew. But now look at chapter 3, verse 19. This is after the fall. He says, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Man was taken from the dust, and because of his sin, he's going to have to return to dust. Adam's sin brought mortality into this world, and that mortality, something passed on to all of us, and that means that all of us are going to die, and all of us are going to disintegrate back into dirt. We are taken from dirt, we're going to return to dirt. And so then you suddenly see this kind of really pointed thing that God is teaching us in pointing Adam to, that now you're going to work the ground to get grain. Grain, seed going into the ground, makes him sit and work in the dirt. And it's this constant reminder of his own mortality. Um, Adam must now work for his food in the dust. And think about what it is to go out and, and, um, and grow grain. To grow grain is to go out, cut open the earth, put the seed into the earth. And unlike a fruit tree, which is planted once and then just keeps giving new fruit each season, a farmer has to go out and sink all his money into seed and sink that seed into the ground. It's this constant reminder and picture of our own mortality. It's a great way to bring home the consequences of Adam's fall, this this vivid picture of our mortality and the curse. And Genesis tells us that we are like that seed because we are children of Adam and mortal. We, We must all be put back into the ground. We are taken from the ground, and we must be put back into it. Therefore, seed, grain, and bread as food are reminders or signs of our mortality. We all must die, so we all must eat from food uh, that dies every year. Okay, so I think I've managed to take you through the, uh, the first bit of uh, doing some, some uh, work through the Hebrew, and the second is to just give you a really um, uh, terribly depressing point. And we can just end it right there and say amen and, and end the morning. But I think there's a little bit more, okay? There, there's a little bit more. Let, let, let's keep pushing on on this. Uh, it all sounds pretty morbid and depressing. Um, but here's the problem. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm from Moscow, Idaho. We live in the middle of the Palouse. It is um, these, it's this terribly fertile area. I mean, it's just ridiculously fruitful. You can see um, grain, um, wheat, and barley fields for as far as you can see in every direction. And uh, you don't have to irrigate or anything. It's so fertile. It just grows everywhere. And we feed nations with the crops that, that come out of the palouse. It, it's, um, it's really ridiculous how much grows there. So I'm just pe- preaching to a congregation of farmers frequently when I'm, when I'm talking to them. And, and you can't, this is the thing, you can't with a straight face tell a farmer that going out and putting seed in the ground is this morbid, depressing, and hopeless act that to go out and put your seed in the ground is this symbol of, you know, it's kind of a nihilistic despair. It's all over, you're all gonna die, you're all gonna turn to dirt, and that's all I'm saying when I put seed in the ground. That doesn't work. That just doesn't work because farmers, when they go out and they put that seed into the ground, they do so with a tremendous hope. And it, it's true, they sink all their money to buy this, this seed, and they sink it all in the ground, but they do it looking forward to something Tremendous. Uh, they, and, uh, and they do very well uh, in the place with it. When a, farmer, when a farmer cuts open the earth to put the seed in, he doesn't do so in grim defeat. He actually does so with great hope because he's looking to a harvest. And scripture carries over this hope to us, right? Scripture, in calling our minds to this idea of seed, And focusing us on this idea of seed as we're thinking about our own mortality is telling us that, yes, you're going to die, but in that death, there's something more. There's something more. There's there's a mortality that's coming, but it's a very particular kind of mortality. It's the mortality of a seed going into the ground. Yes, we're all going into the ground because we're all mortal, but we go into the ground as seed, and seed brings with it a hope. And that's and Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians. Um, if you can flip to 1 Corinthians 15, and I really think Paul is catching what's going on here um, in Genesis. In 1 Corinthians 15, listen to verses 35 through 37. Someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. He says, you're, you're, you're wheat, you're grain, but you need to understand that you, if you want real life, if you want the life that's to come, you need to die first. You need to act like a seed. You need to go down into the ground. You need to die like a seed does because that seed grows up into something much greater. There is something that is coming after that death. Look at verses 42 and 43. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. The seed that goes into the ground is a pale shadow of a glory that is still to come. And look at verses 48 and 49. As was the man of dust, Adam. Remember the man whose name makes you think of dirt. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. We're all made of dust. We're like that Adam. We're going to go back into the dust. But he says, S- um, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly, right? There's something else that's going on here. And as we have been born, and as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So yes, you are seed. Yes, you're going back uh, to the dirt because yes, you are children of Adam. But if you, by faith, are also being remade into the likeness of the second Adam, right, then there is something that happens with that seed. There is a resurrection. There is a life after death because that's what seed does is it takes you to a new glory. Um, so so uh, grain provides food just like a fruit tree. Okay? It provides food just like a fruit tree. But the grain must die first. That's the difference between the grain and the fruit tree. The grain must die first. Um, It must go into the ground to die before returning in glory. And that is what man after the fall is. I think that's why God changes us from looking at trees for food to looking at grain from food. Prior to the fall, there wasn't death. And the food represented that. After the fall, there was death. But it wasn't just death. It was death and then life, all right? It was this resurrected glory, and the grain, the wheat, points to that resurrected glory. Um, And um, that's what man is after the fall. We are grain. So grain isn't just a sign of our mortality. It isn't just depressing. Um, It's a sign of the hope in the midst of mortality. We're creatures that must die first, but there there is a life eternal that comes after that death, after that burial. There is a harvest that's to come still. So God wasn't just being morbid then when he focused the curse on seed going into the ground. He was putting hope in the very middle of the curse. He was letting us know that there's a resurrection. There's life after death. And I think that's why Genesis moves then from a focus on trees before the fall to grain and farming after the fall. We are now grain. But let's get a little bit more specific, because I think there's actually even more that this text is telling us about. The hope in Genesis three is actually much stronger than even just that. Okay, it's more pointed and more particular than just that. We're always, you know, we we insist, and, and this is um, something I, I know that you all believe that there is one plan of salvation. All right, throughout all of Scripture, there's been one plan of salvation through all of Scripture. It's Christ from the beginning all the way to the end. You've got uh, thousands of years of looking forward to Christ and now thousands of years looking back to Christ. But it's all pointed to Christ. And when we want to make that argument, usually the first place we go is the curse. Genesis chapter 3, where you get that first um, hint of the coming Messiah, I want you to go back there and look for a moment and see how is that coming Messiah described. Chapter three, verse 15. This is God delivering the curse to the serpent and in the midst of the curse, he's letting us know about this coming hope. And how does he describe it? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the Messiah who's promised at the beginning, how is that Messiah described? He's the seed. He is the seed that it is all about. He is the piece of grain that's gonna be put down into the ground to die like a piece of grain going down to be buried and on the third day is gonna rise up into a great harvest and in that death, burial, and resurrection all of our hope of a future resurrection its all tied up in this fact that Jesus is the seed that it was all about. He's the one that's gonna go into the ground. He's the one our hope is in and he's the one that's gonna rise up on the third day, and bring us with him. The Messiah was the coming seed of the woman. So we, we are all seed now, we're all seed, but there is one true seed. There's one true man of dust, a man who was fully the son of Adam, right? He was fully the son of Adam, and made of dust like us. But he would die, be buried, and on the third day he would bring such a resurrection harvest that the whole world would be changed by it. So do you see then why I think the whole story of the fall and the curse of mankind was told with this particular focus on seed, this, this grain, this, this crop that we needed to think about. Um, Adamson brought in death, but God was telling us that he's capable of putting life right in the middle of our death by sending a new seed. He's capable of, of redeeming our death and turning it into this glorious victory uh, to glorify him. And in fact, I think all of Scripture really points to this one true seed who was to come. There's many different ways that that Scripture and and typologically points to Christ. But I think this is one of the themes that we see through the Old Testament is this idea of a coming seed. And when you think of it that way, all of a sudden you start to see these little marks throughout the whole Old Testament. Even uh, shortly after the section we're in, in chapter 4, verse 25, Cain has killed Abel and God gives um, uh, Eve a new son. And um, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me, instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. There's this seed that's now passed on. It's the seed of the woman that we're looking for. It culminates in Christ, but seed of the woman, you can trace it throughout the whole Old Testament. And it starts to make a little sense of a lot of the stories when you see that they're all looking for this coming seed. Think about the story of Tamar in Genesis 38. It's one of those passages, a little bit a little bit kind of disturbing and, and creepy. You wonder if it's okay to even have that read in church sometimes. It, it's a strange and bizarre story until you until you start to see it this way, until you think of it this, this way. Um, it's creepy until you see that this was a woman who was so willing to be utterly humiliated for the sake of the seed of God, willing to do whatever it took to pass on the seed of God. Ruth is a faithful woman uh, who... who who is willing to leave everything in order to carry the seed and doesn't it make so much more that the whole story of Ruth unfolds in the setting of a great grain harvest right she's passing on the seed of God the seed of the woman who's eventually going to um to conquer uh, death itself and one of the most common ways to refer to the coming messiah in the old testament is as seed Uh, Psalm 89 is a great example. You see several references to the seed of God, the seed of God that we're looking for, the seed of the woman. Doesn't it also make sense then that God would pour out his spirit on the church to preach to all the nations during the Feast of Pentecost, a feast that celebrates the harvest of grain? Why are we celebrating the harvest of grain in our liturgical season? It's because we're looking forward to that great harvest to come. Because seed going into the ground can actually lead to life coming up out of the ground, right? That's the magic of a seed. You put it in, and then later on, this great plant comes up out of it. Because seed does that, it makes such a great image of the Messiah and our salvation. Jesus is the seed that died and was buried and then rose again. And you partake of this because your death is inside of Christ's death. You are united to him so that you can partake in his death, burial, and his resurrection. Um, Galatians 2.20, I've been united with Christ. Right? I've been united with Christ. I've been tied up with him. So what happened to him when he, was, when he died, when he was buried, and when he rose again, I can claim that as my own now because I've been united with him. Another great passage for describing our union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection uh, comes in Romans chapter six. I'm looking at Romans six, verse five. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. If you're, if you're united with Christ when he goes into the ground, right, when he was planted, then you're going to be united with him when he comes back up. You're going to be a part of that harvest. And one of the things that's interesting is um, the, the um, word there for if we've been united with him, he says, on verse 5, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death. That word united in the Greek is a little bit peculiar. It literally is if you've been co-planted, if you've been planted along with him. If when he goes down, when he died, if you went down planted with him, when he was planted as a seed, if you were planted with him, then that means you're going to rise up with him. You're going to be that harvest, that victory over death itself. So yes, Grain pictures the curse, okay? It does. Um, we go from the trees to, to grain. It pictures the because of uh, the, the fall of Adam, because the curse has been uh, leveled against us. It is a picture of mortality. It is a picture of dying and going into the ground, which we all must do because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? That's true, but that's not enough. There's more to it than just that. Grain is also a picture of the hope that God put in the very middle of that curse. This hope that God put in the middle of it all that this death would be swallowed up by life. We have hope in death because God sent his son to come and be that ultimate seed that would go into the ground and through faith, we are planted with him. We are co-planted with him and we grow up into new life with him. That's why the curse in Genesis, I think, wants to talk about seed He's talking about this great glory that is to come, God's victory over our curse. So there's hope here. There's a real hope here, but I I hope that you notice the kind of hope because there's something, I think, really profound and there's a little bit of practical Christianity that I would like you to get out of this in in the way that you apply this uh, in your life. Notice that God did not solve the problem of Adam's sin by giving him means by which he could just undo the damage that he had done okay, notice that when, when God confronted Adam for his sin in disobeying him and taking the tree that he was forbidden to take from, right? when, when, he, when he committed this great sin, what does God do? God does not say, it's okay, Adam. We're gonna go back to the way things were before. We're gonna, we're gonna do a little thing where we pretend that that didn't happen, and I'm gonna give you a divine do-over, a great mulligan from the sky where you just get to start over and we're gonna pretend like that never happened. That's not what happened, right? When Adam sinned, there were consequences and a curse fell on him. There was a a curse that fell on him. And God's solution to that was not to take Adam into the pre-fall state again. His solution to Adam falling under the curse was to come down with Adam and defeat Adam. The curse for him, to overcome the curse for him, and to bring Adam to walk with him as he overthrew that curse on Adam's behalf. You see how there's this forward trajectory, even through our sin, that you can see in in this story. It is not a, um, in, in other words, the gospel and the cross was not a time machine from the sky to take us back to a time where we could pretend like the fall never happened. The fall happened. We all still die. We're, we're mortal. But what we have is victory over this curse in the cross, not some chance to go, excuse me, to go back and pretend like it never happened. And I, I say this because I think our tendency is, when we see the consequences of sin in our life. and I'm sure you can do that. You can see the scars and carnage of sin in your life maybe some some of the scars are sins of others or maybe some of the scars are, are self-inflicted your own sin where you you've made a mess of things and when we when we look at that sin in our life when we see the consequences of it and we say okay all right i'm 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 going to leave this life of sin i'm going to give my life to christ i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to put my faith in him i want to be co-planted with him our tendency is to think that the cross has not accomplished what god intended for it to accomplish unless somehow we are magically transported into a world before we did those awful things, right? We want to be transli- um, transported back into this, again, divine mulligan where we, where we get to act as if these things never happened. And the danger of that is, is that that's, well, it's just not true. That's not, that's not the way God has, has made the world. It's not the way God has delivered his salvation. And you'll find yourself regularly either living in some sort of um, kind of imaginary world, where you're constantly kind of fantasizing that I'm, I'm, I'm pretending like those things never happened and, and you, and you, or you'll find yourself just sort of constantly daydreaming like if I could go back to this year, then these things would, would not have happened, right? And so you find yourself trying to imagine your life without your sin as if that's what your salvation was supposed to have given you, all right? Or you find yourself resentful and with a growing resentment in your life because the cross does not seem to be providing what you thought it was going to give you. You keep keep expecting your, your Christian faith to make it as if these things had never happened and it doesn't accomplish that and you find yourself getting resentful because of it. We start to think that God is somehow ripping you off in your salvation if you're still having to deal with the consequences of your sin. But here's the thing, that's not an option. That's not, that, that is not what God has given us. The cross was not a time machine. God didn't go and delete Adam's sin. Instead, what God did was he took Adam's sin, he took all of its consequences, and he turned it into another path for walking into God's glory, right? He took Adam's sin, he took its consequences, and then he came and incarnated himself. He comes down as God in the flesh, and he takes those consequences on himself, and then he walks through, he becomes the seed that goes into the ground that takes that death on himself and takes us with him through that death, and he's risen up on the third day, and he takes us with him in that resurrection. He moves us forward through the consequences of our sin, not backward to try to pretend like they had never happened. Right? And, and in doing all of that, he glorifies himself. He brings us something tremendous in showing how our sins have not been erased and deleted, but conquered, defeated in the resurrection. And I think that that's something that's, um, that's important to have straight in how you think about your own life. God took Adam's sin and it, uh, all its consequences and turned it into another path for walking into God's glory. I want you to look at two texts to, to read them in parallel and see how God is moving Mankind forward through the consequences of our sin. And he's not taking us backward, he's taking us forward. The doors behind close, but he opens a door in front, bringing us through uh, to his glory. Look at Genesis chapter three, verses 22 through 23. Again, we're looking, at, um, we're looking at the curse and the consequences of Adam's sin. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He said, look, the tree of life, you can't have that anymore. If you were to eat from the tree of life, you would take it and you would eat and you would live forever. So, so we're going to shut that door, okay? I'm going to send you out of the garden. I'm going to shut the door. I'm going to put an angel with a big sword there so you cannot go back in. Tree of life, we're blocking it off. I don't want you going in there because if you went in there, you would put out your hand, you would take and you would eat and you would have eternal life and, and you can't have that now, right? That's, that's, the, that's as Adam goes out of the garden and he says, so you're going to go out of here and you're going to go out and you're going to till the ground. Go out and farm, Go out and spend some time working in the dirt, thinking about your mortality, grow some grain, eat some bread. All right? That's, that's leave the garden. I you look at John chapter six. This is starting at verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. You see that? He says, get out, go away from the tree of life. That door's closed. All right, you've lost that. I don't want you to reach out your hand and take and eat and live forever. Go out and farm. And then you go out and you start farming. And then Jesus says, now, I want to introduce you to the bread of life okay? The bread of life. And what's going to happen when you take the Lord's Supper uh, next Sunday? And the words of institution. He's going to say, take, eat. Stretch out your hand, take this, and eat it. And right? he's pointing to the eternal bread, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for the life of the world. There is eternal life. It's still right there. It's still right there. But he's, he's not taking you back. He's not pretending like it never happened. You're going to go forward. You're going to go through death but that eternal life is still right there and God is glorified um, by it. So let me ask you then, uh, what, what are you hanging on to in your life? What, what sin, what mistake, what thing from the past do you sit and hold on to and pretend that God is not doing his work for you unless he has magically deleted that from your history? Okay, Where do you find yourself maybe going, uh, growing resentful against God because you don't see those things just magically evaporating and going away? Where do you find yourself um, catching yourself in your fantasy life, trying to go back to the year before that had happened, before, uh, before that terrible thing happened that you now have to live with? Where do you catch yourself doing that? Let me, let me urge you to take that and plant it with Christ. All right, plant it with him and see him buried with it and raising it up into eternal life, turning it into something glorious. What sin, what mistake, what massive failure do you keep hanging on to because you think God hasn't fixed it unless he's erased it? Put it in the ground. It's the only place it belongs. Put it with Christ and see how he's going to glorify it. Put it in the ground and let it die. Plant it and see what God grows from it. Let's pray.